Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Dalancin. Can cockroaches live in space? What would a brick have to say if you asked it? Well, a new book by Rolf Hughes and Rachel Armstrong, The Art of Experiment, Post-Pandemic Knowledge Practices for 21st Century Architecture and Design, asks and almost answers some of these questions. The book is in part a brief history of knowing, in part an experimental training manual, and in part a manifesto for knowledge practices in architecture and design. Rachel Armstrong is Professor of Experimental Architecture at Newcastle University. Rolf Hughes is Professor of Epistemology of Design-Driven Research at KU Leuven in Belgium. They both join me now to discuss their work. Welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. Thanks, Pierre. It's very nice to be here. Well, I came across your work at one of those Zoom conferences that we've all been enjoying for the, for the past year. And I remember really startled by the kind of rapport and energy that the two of you had. I also have a slightly hallucinatory memory of one of you presenting from inside of a spaceship. So I wonder if you could if you could start by talking a little bit about how you came to work together and what brought you to the subject matter of the book. We first met, as I remember, when I was invited to the Bartlett's to be an external um, critic for the ongoing PhD work there. And there was a procession of interesting projects. Um, and then uh, Rachel walked in and um, gave a talk which flew over my head, but I was inspired enough to realize that she'd changed the conversation entirely, that all our concepts were different from that point onwards. So I, I wanted to acknowledge that in my response, but also uh, acknowledge that I, I lacked the tools to sufficiently engage with something that I'd just witnessed. So from that point onwards, I, I was interested in Rachel's work and her way of thinking. And in fact, for many years in Sweden, um, where I was living, I would cite her work to all my students. I, it would be the sort of ending of a lecture where I could say, but here's somebody that's really reconfiguring the way that we think, the methods we use, and the concepts that we uh, combine in ways that I, I haven't seen addressed anywhere else. So that was the beginning of, of a sort of connection that then took a, a giant step when in 2017 I got the possibility to join Rachel and the experimental, experimental architecture group that she was forming at Newcastle University for three years and uh, we started working directly together. Um, we could say that before then we'd done a, a um, our first collaboration was actually book called Handbook of the Unknowable, a book that uh, perhaps you want to introduce, Rachel. Yes, uh, and thank you for um, the resume. Uh, what Rolf has actually brought to a practice that I was developing, which was really um, trying to look through materiality um, from the perspective of, a, of an organism, to, to try and consider that the world itself had life. And if it did, then how did we design and engineer with that? Um, so I had quite a, a technical um, and scientific understanding of 
materiality. And I was really chewing my way through this because I had to keep proving everything from scratch. Um, my first question started out actually as a political position. Um, I really didn't like the idea of genetic determinism, which imprisoned people's fate in their bodies. And so I felt that if we were going to be able to liberate the nature of life in a fundamental way, a new politics was needed for materiality that meant it wasn't already assigned to a certain fate from its outset. And so I was looking to unconventional forms of matter, uncon unconventional forms of life in order to unlock that potential. So I looked to the origins of life sciences. Um, and so I was using 19th century experiments to revisit some of the fundamental questions that were being um, asked then about the nature of biology and its difference from chemistry. And so I was really starting from this first principles perspective. And so early on, when I um, came across the agent that I spent quite a long time with, the protocell or the dynamic droplet, protocells are a controversial term. There are some that uh, pr propose that it's actually the first artificial living cell. So that's um, Rasmussen and colleagues. Uh, there are others that say that it is the entity that is lifelike, but is not itself alive, almost like a proto-being. And that's the philosophical camp that I would stand in that would be shared by people like Takashi Kagami and Martin Hanzuk. Um, but, this, but this entity um, became a tool for thinking and re-articulating uh, materiality, the nature of life, and a politics of existence. And what I mean by that is the power redistribution um, between matter and context. So, you know, the Darwinian uh, body and environment uh, axis, uh, because if something is not technically alive and yet it has a relationship with its surroundings, there is a redistribution of where all the interesting activity happens. And the thing about these droplets was that you could actually see that happening. It was something that you no longer needed to theorize. Once you looked at the protocell, you started to actually engage with a different kind of materiality. It wasn't life and therefore you couldn't narrate it in the biological tropes that have been used politically um, over the centuries. And nor was it non-living. It was definitely lively. It was recognizably lifelike. And so it's, it existed in this intermediate zone, which was just a treasure trove of um, uh, observation and reflection on those. And so I was taking this novel materiality, something I could actually experiment uh, with for a walk in the world. And all the time I was being challenged by, you know, what is the nature of this thing that you're uh, showing us? Um, what does it mean? Where is it going to end up? How did it come about? Um, so all these kind of fundamental ontological questions um, as well as the epistemological and the um, then applied questions about, so what do we do with this now? So I was really having to defend 
the nature of an enlivened materiality that moved away from this subject-object um, human-centric worldview and was actually um, presenting itself as um, an autonomous entity to audiences that found it as strange as I did. And so when um, I started having uh, conversations with Rolf, I remember um, his reaction quite clearly um, uh, when I presented this work at the Bartlett um, uh, because he stood up and and I thought that was most unusual. I was really trying to avoid having any debate <laughs> about the nature of this entity because I knew it would um, be controversial. Um, so I, I registered that. And so then when we started talking later, I was just really delighted that he had a wealth of, um, let's say, tools and knowledge that I had not had access to when I was trying to articulate the nature of this intermediate, ambiguous entity. And so those are the tools of the arts. Um, and he had a fantastic repertoire of um, uh, not just literary references, but he's a prose poet. Um, and so he, he provided a way of talking about the entity that went beyond the scientific descriptions and justifications in which I was entrenched. I couldn't escape them because I was always being asked to justify them on those terms. Um, so that, that Rolf's um, insights and then practice uh, created these many new dimensions, which has actually really resulted in the book that uh, we've produced together, the one that we're talking about today. I um, identified that Rachel's work sort of occupies a space of contradiction and paradox, you know, that she works with these concepts that are neither nor, you know, neither living nor non-living. Um, and um, and that, it seemed to me, and, and also by combining different disciplinary sets like chemistry and biology, so you get artificial soil and, you know, um, <clears throat> And it seemed to me that, first of all, there's a sort of knot, interesting knot of thinking there, but also the um, the way that that's embedded in forms of um, uh, experience through prototypes, you know, setting up experiments through prototypes in order to create these interesting epistemic things or conceptual models that allow you to um, <clears throat> think beyond yourself, you know. So it's no longer a conversation about mere virtuosity. It's kind of, I don't think either of us are particularly interested in that. It's more a question of um, how to put together uh, the appropriate and most expressive conceptual tools that allow you to go to a place that you wouldn't otherwise arrive at. So the book I mentioned, which was the first time we collaborated, The Handbook of the Unknowable, this um, got me very excited because uh, basically Rachel set this question, uh, how might we travel beyond the solar system and see the conditions for life on a journey that might take 20,000 years or more. Um, and you very quickly realize with that sort of question and related ones, like how do you navigate when there's no sense of forward or backwards or north, south, west, east, because conditions are in constant flux, your relationship to time has changed, that all your existing tools are, are, are quite useless. You know, they because they're designed for life on Earth, and so you have to really uh, start from the premise of um, unknowing rather than knowing, and 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 start to sort of think what might be, um, you know, uh, best equipped to tackle those sort of questions. 
So the book itself follows a um, a journey from, if you like, the humanities into poetry and madness and black pages. <laughs> As we journey further away from certainty, the book mirrors that in its structure, that the, the early contributions are essays, and later it becomes uh, a combination of uh, poetic contributions, images, and even the gibberish from the SETI satellite, which is traveling through space, screaming neurotically into space to try to get an answering echo from uh, from some form out there. Well, I want us definitely to get into some of the experiments. I think the book we're discussing is, def- is itself called The Art of Experiment, and one of the joys in it is that you go through applications of this you know, bewildering type of epistemology. But I think it would be good to start at the beginning, um, and you do start right at the beginning. The first, the first chapters contain an account of the Big Bang. So I wonder whether you could give us a kind of potted, brief history of knowing as you think it maybe for your purposes diverts from mainstream narratives. Yeah, thank, thank you. Uh, that, that's a really interesting question because the question that bothers me uh, when I am observing these dynamic bodies with agency is this primal question that, you know, there is life and non-life and the various degrees of agency that are expressed you know, throughout the universe um, from um, nebula and the birth of stars um, to the wriggly nature of soils to the ways that rocks weather um, or a volcano erupts. Um, they are not classically alive, and yet they have this agency. And the thing that um, starts to bother me is that if this matter does not have a notion of agency, it doesn't have the capacity to make decisions, then how do we have that capacity? And so the starting point for thinking through the knowledge that matter possessed and the contradictions that go into the material world as we know it through 21st century insights, you know, astronomical, um, quantum physics, uh, a whole bunch of Uh, new knowledge that has been produced over the last century. How can we incorporate that into our relationship with knowledge so that the very stuff that we are made from uh, is being expressed through the kinds of conversations that that we have about knowledge? Um, So uh, the first thing for me was to find the space in matter through which we can have agency. And so then that meant a kind of rethinking um, of the nature of matter and the very start of our stories of the world and not creating that um, binary rupture between intelligence and matter, which comes with stories of God or these ideas of superintelligent beings that never really materialize. Can we actually place that agency within matter itself. And so, you know, the the, uh, book opens with the idea that, you know, when we actually look, you know, through our 21st century lenses at the nature of matter, it is a paradox. Uh, An atom isn't a hard thing. Uh, It's a cloud of probability that's, 
you know, even within itself made of uh, an ecology of actants uh, that we don't fully understand. Um, and therefore, it is impossible to say that, oh, no, intelligence doesn't uh, reside there. And of course, that kind of pronouncement also makes us question, well, what is this intelligence that we're that we're claiming um, uh, authorship to this 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 thing that we say we value, um, if we cannot recognise um, the co-constitutive agents and the you know, tiny conversations and negotiations that are going into the very matter that makes up the world, um, you know what else are we what else are we blind to? So really, it's a very primal stage um, for setting the possibility of an enlivened world, not as a matter of belief, um, but as an affirmation of acquired knowledge um, and the start of a story where knowledges are not absolute but are enfolded into each other, that each knowledge form uh, informs another and enriches it and um, really trying to set a stage to pay attention and be aware and receptive to uh, the possibility of an expanded sense of, of agency um, from the very uh, beginnings of matter itself. What that what your summary makes clear, I think, Rachel, is that um, ethics is uh, implicated in this discussion from the very beginning, so that instead of knowledge as some sort of instrumental uh, tool that one can extract and disseminate and share and apply rather we are sort of resetting the question in terms of uh, issues like care and attention being aware of proximity um, being uh, able to coexist or to draw forth that which is outside language and that which doesn't have a voice um, and so there's a very strong uh, despite the title and the focus on knowledge there's actually a very strong emphasis on a, a sort of ethical resetting of the knowledge discussion until you do that in the book in a, in a very striking way. I mean, the, a reading of the Big Bang and evolutionary cycles through that kind of lens that already implies ethical considerations. And it read almost like, like a story, you know, like a novel, which is really beautiful of an academic book you know, and rare. So I think it would be really interesting to punctuate the conversation of the, the theoretical claims of the book with some of the examples that come from your practice, which are the experiments themselves that you already alluded to. I have to ask you about the cockroaches. This is the experiment with which you open that section. I can't unsee it. I can't unremember it. What is it? What does it have to do with architecture? What do cockroaches know? You should see the video. <laughs> I, I'm happy to share it. We can link it in the show notes. If it's something we can share with our audience, I'm sure they'll be delighted. Well, the cockroaches um, were a way of prototyping the possibility of existence beyond the planet from a non-human perspective. So this already exists with the International Space Station, and we can think of that as the first space house, if we like. Um, so from the third millennium, uh, around six people have lived you know, in shifts constantly away from the planet's surface. And there they have conducted a whole range of experiments um, from you know, how do we wash our teeth uh, to looking at materials and other uh, 
ways of looking at the world using the um, microgravity as a way of understanding things that we have assumed to be constants on Earth and observing what happens when those constants are taken away and that our experience is relocated in another space. And I was very interested in this idea of life um, beyond the planet's surface, and I was trying to figure out uh, which experiments had been done in the International Space Station um, that showed us you know, what, what kinds of animals could thrive in these extreme conditions. And having gone through quite a number of experiments that were documented by NASA, public records, uh, I noted that cockroaches were not on the list. They had mice, they had flies, uh, they had spiders, had cats, dogs, uh, but cockroaches were remarkably absent. <laughs> so that got me thinking, um, why is the data on cockroaches so absent? <laughs> So um, uh, in this uh, experiment, uh, I obviously took the idea that cockroaches have a reputation for being super hardy. Um, they were also the subject of a conversation I had had many years earlier uh, with Jake and Dinos Chapman, who were reflecting on um, what kind of non-human uh, soap, let's call it a, um, a kind of domestic drama, could they set up, um, which touched a nerve with the public, but not in a horrible way. And the conversation went along the lines of, um, if we had a drama with mice, uh, they're furry and they have bright little eyes and whiskers and they're kind of cute. Um, but cockroaches, people don't really care about cockroaches. Uh, maybe those could be our workhorses for this particular soap. I don't know if they ever went through with their cockroach drama, but that conversation uh, stuck with me. So um, when I was thinking about how might we run an experiment where cockroaches, as a kind of drama, uh, in an extreme condition, shared their knowledge with us, their embodied knowledge about what it meant to inhabit an extreme environment. Um, all these factors came together. And so we made a very simple biosphere, uh, which is really out of um, a, lick, a flask that you would normally um, contain liquids in, prepared it for a journey into the stratosphere. I was hitching a lift on existing commercial payloads that were organized by Nebula Sciences. And the first payload, so the first payload I could get away with in, in terms of looking at extremophiles and how um, uh, these agentized forms could exist beyond the world. I started actually out with the protocells. Um, I thought that the simplest forms of agency might be the most hardy. But they weren't. The protocells got made into soup. Uh, they started off as lovely little looking bodies, and yeah, by the by the time they got jiggled around in the um, the crosswinds in the atmosphere, uh, they turned into brown mud. So that payload was a bit of a write off. And so the second one, I thought, well, let's take 
hardier integrity will will try cacti because there were also aerophytes, which are plants that actually don't need soil. They dangle their roots in the atmosphere and they uh, pick up moisture that way. So I thought if I made an aerial garden um, from cacti and aerophytes, then maybe you know, we could actually follow the journey of these beings um, and have a look at their hardiness um, in space, but in a, in a way that was framed as if it was curated and designed by, not necessarily by humans, but a, but a garden, a, a kind of community of bodies. What was interesting about the cacti was that um, they started to become loose and the hardiness of their structure actually started to shred themselves. So they started to um, cut each other and they um, shredded each, each other. And then the, um, uh, the platform itself, uh, the balloon burst in the uh, commercial payload and the whole garden fell to earth and it's this spinning um nose diving uh gosh uh ex garden of no, well unearthly delights perhaps it was really very bosh um so yes there's this kind of dramatic nose dive of these ugly objects that actually look really quite beautiful once they're Framed against the uh, backdrop of of, uh, of 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 our beautiful planet, um, which brings us the cockroaches and the, the way that they were framed could not be by any stretch described as beautiful. They were in a sort of plastic jar and uh, silhouetted against the sky as they disappeared further and further up. Um, and uh, it's quite a uh, striking video, quite a harrowing video in many ways. It, it is, and I mean the. The environment for the cockroaches, I just want to say, like the ethical consideration, I mean, there, it, there was no intention for macabre voyeurism. Um, the idea was that we would watch a choreography of cockroaches as a form of um, embodied knowledge so that as far as we could in the wild, in the stratosphere, um, we could learn from the hardiest creatures on Earth. If if protocells couldn't make it and cactuses couldn't make it, what could the cockroaches tell us about life in extreme environments? So they were given a little bit of food. Um, they were GPS tagged and they had a warmed uh, plate. So they had like a little spaceship, um, to, a little cockroach spaceship to go up in, a little bit of food. Um, and a camera that was in a fixed position at the bottom of the flask. Well, of course, as the as the balloon rises, the first thing that the cockroaches do is disappear from view. They go up. So they so for about twenty minutes, you see nothing but the cockroaches hiding right at the top of the flask. You don't see that. But there's just nothing. And then after a while, um, a cockroach drops down. And we realize that actually the heating plate has failed. Um, and the uh, cockroaches actually, uh, you can tell by their movement, are starting to feel the cold. And so the blood in a cockroach doesn't flow through its body like, they, like, like our tissues in a closed vasculature. They have a very open uh, vascular. They have like a, 
uh, a straw-like fluid that goes through their body. And so as the ice crystals formed, their movement changed. And so they slow down, they become visible in front of the um, camera. And so first one does this kind of, instead of this quick movement that you're, um, uh, you know, you would associate with trying to catch a cockroach, it's a very slow labored movement. Um, and of course, you know, they're not eating their food. Um, so one falls down and then the other falls down. And so we can see them right in front of the camera. And this uh, rather uh, harrowing uh, exchange between two cockroaches and their bodily movements and their relationship with each other is really this um, stumbling um, between something that looks like they're fighting or they're trying to have the last cockroach baby uh, before the species comes extinct. And it's really hard to actually understand, you know, which movements belong to what set of intentions. Um, I think the most shocking part of that video, though, is that um, the extreme environment itself acts on the cockroach capsule. And effectively, the glue on the capsule freezes and the capsule is fractured from its footing on the payload and the capsule uh, tagged with GPS falls to earth. Now, there is a moral in the story because the cockroaches were tracked uh, through their GPS locator and they were fine. So the, the moral is <laughs> if you want to get rid of your cockroaches, do not put them in a flask and send them up to the stratosphere as they will be back. Wow. Okay. There, I mean, apart from the fact that this is incredibly amusing as a story, you've touched on so many things that to me as a former scientist has to pick up on. And you do that in a book beautifully, is that you've, you've run all these questions of how science has been done. But, you know, questions like, why is it that cockroaches have not been sent onto the, the ISS? You, you've kind of covered so many of these grounds, whether by design or even inadvertently, even the fact that your capsule fails produces, produces an outcome. So I wonder if we could use, use, use this moment to, to go to the way that you outlined the history of the way that knowledge has been constructed and your own new framing of, of Organa Paradoxa and how that might play itself out in your investigations? Yeah, so the idea of knowledge instruments is a very old um, concept. You know, so Aristotle's organon was um, the kind of ontological framework for knowledge of it up, in, yeah, up until the Enlightenment and even beyond that. Um, so, so a, a way of organizing the world through an instrument of knowledge making created a certain kind of thinking and practice that defined the classical world. So that was called the organon. And Francis Bacon in the Enlightenment um, uh, decides that there needs to be a more rational instrument, which he calls the novum organum. And so this is the new instrument for looking at nature. So Aristotle's knowledge was nature-based and um, so was Francis Bacon. 
Um, but his knowledge was grounded in what we might call the modern scientific method. So with formal kinds of laboratory experiments, um, with you know a certain kind of rationalism, um, what we might now recognize as reductionism, um, and a simplification, a kind of a clarification of relationships um, uh, between cause and effect. Uh, and so um, the way that let's say, um, the world has changed in the last year with the advent of the pandemic. Let's call it as an expression of the factors um, that have been rampant in the Anthropocene with climate change and um, uh, human incursions into every part of the planet from our microplastics to our uh, exploration of of space. Um, That what we were looking for was a new knowledge instrument for these weird and wonderful times that the old organum, the uh, novum organum, um, were not helping us address. And what was interesting about the term for the organa paradoxa was that we were looking for the exceptions and we were looking for multiples so that um, the two previous forms of knowledge or the knowledge instruments were anthropocentric. And we were asking ourselves if we expanded um, to the realm of cockroaches, um, what it meant to know how to live, um, then what would the knowledge instruments that we would need and what would those knowledge instruments um, look like? And so that was the um, ontology of the um, Organa paradoxa. Um, And the paradoxa is really looking at the exceptions on the tree of Linnaeus, as he, the accountant of God, starts to take stock of God's household and starts to order all the different life forms. And then he comes across a whole bunch um, that I think disappear after the first two um, uh, editions um, you know, of his uh, you know, binomial classification. Um, and um, so, you know, things like the, the unicorn and, um, uh, you know, the, in fact, the, um, the, the, the kraken was, uh, you know, the, 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 yeah, the, um, the giant sea squid was considered to be a mythological beast. So, it's, it's, and, and then it wasn't, you know, so there, there were these gray areas in his uh, form of classification Um where he had to re-rationalize nature. And so he threw out all these things that didn't fit. Um, And it was those things that didn't fit in the empirical order that he then imposed on nature that became interesting for us as a site for thinking about where might we find um, the new knowledge instruments that could tell us about the things that um, the Enlightenment and then modernity um, ha- had controlled. And part of that um, <clears throat> quest to look for forms of practice, which may be knowledge generating, but had been discredited by the modern period, was to rethink uh, what had been privileged in research and in science from the Enlightenment onwards, and to look at what was, as it were, going on simultaneously, but became um, discredited by scientific practices. So. You know, we we take a, um, a, a swift overview of the 
Enlightenment vision with uh, the idea of reason through Bacon, Descartes, and Locke, and on the one side uh, leading to individualism, liberalism, freedom, and then uh, capitalism and wealth, and on the other side leading to science, and from there engineering, uh, development of material goods, medicine, and health. All these things harnessed in the pursuit of happiness and the notion of progress, so the idea that you are you know, incrementally building and uh, developing knowledge and technology and materials and medicine and so on. So everyone's happy and everyone's getting healthier and so on, which is all very well. But you know, uh, beneath that, um, there are a whole series of knowledge-generating practices which have been driven underground, things like witchcraft, uh, augury, alchemy, which we felt were must have been contributing to, for example, material knowledge transfer. Um, whether or not it succeeded in turning lead into gold, <laughs> no matter. <laughs> At least the experiments were developing a fantastic amount of knowledge. Uh, likewise, in uh, you could say uh, varieties of so-called witchcraft would be also producing certain performative uh, insights and so on. So we wanted to sort of revisit some of those and see what we could bring into and. It, Again, some of our experiments, I think, are drawing on those types of uh, uh, practices and creating sort of complex, spooky, um, unresolved environments in which unpredictable outcomes could occur. I think the very first example of that was our first uh, performative collaboration, which was the Temptations of the Non-Linear Ladder, a piece that was exhibited as part of the Do Disturb Festival in Paris, in um, 2016, I think. Um, and we brought together there a number of, uh, or two circus artists and a director from Circus Secur in Sweden um, and their technical director. Um, we created a black pool and a rotating steel platform and had a series of Madaka fish on columns around this pool. It was set in a, the Palais de Tokyo in Paris. It was set in a... Um, very atmospheric corner of the building called the temple. So it already had this sort of quasi-religious vibe to the space. And we brought these um, strange elements together and um, without any rehearsal, without any script, um, without any using any language in the presentation, and we invited these incredibly talented uh, circus artists who one was a contortionist and the other one was a world champion in street dance, so they really knew how to use their bodies to move through. We gave them the brief of transitioning between different planes of existence to move through this apparatus that we'd set up there. What we discovered was that, uh, well, first of all, we wanted to put a focus on the reflections you know, rather than the virtuosity of the movements themselves, but the actual uh, the black mirror, what was occurring through the ripples and the water and the reflections that would set up. Um, and also we discovered that they were not only uh, creating a sort of story machine using this apparatus, that every iteration of this um, experiment would produce a different type of story, but also they were almost um, conjuring forth in an occult way uh, an aspect of the architectural space that wasn't visible to the, to the eye that there became a column of performative space that suddenly became very present through a combination of dripping bodily movements, rotating steel platforms going up and down, and this sort of the waves on this black mirror, uh, and the light from the videos of the protocells that also surrounded the, the space as well. 
Yeah, and I, and I think the audience of other bodies, um, which were the uh, proto-cells, so we had the proto-cell films, um, almost like watching this Petri dish of transformation. Um, and the Madaka fish were significant in the fact that they are the only uh, vertebrates that have successfully had progeny in space. Um, and so it was an evolutionary stage in some ways, and that the black mirror and the circus bodies were a membrane that was mutating and dissolving into itself. Um, and I think what was really interesting about the choreography, the, um, the extreme nature of the bodies, I mean, in some ways they lost, even though there was a man and a woman, they, they were no longer really gendered. Um, these were um, entities that, a bit like the cockroaches in some ways, um, were really engaged in acts of survival and transformation all at the same time. And it, it was a potent cauldron um, of uh, events, reflections. The outside was coming in. It wasn't a carefully controlled space. It was very leaky. And uh, it was incredibly moving to watch because uh, you actually had a, an audience that kept coming back for the nine iterations of this performance. Um, it was really spellbinding because there was um, something at stake that uh, even at the most basic um, level, uh, you could feel before you could see. Um, and so there, there was this, this whole um, uh, kind of uh, energy um, that was happening in the temple. And at the same time, Rachel and I were photographing it continually. So we became, in effect, part of the uh, performance, if that's the right word. Um, so this sort of separation of the observer from the phenomena and this uh, documentation process was actually built into the, uh, the thing itself. But it, 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 was, um, it was fascinating because it was uh, enigmatic. It wasn't an illustration of an idea. It was a bringing together of uh, a series of elements and and... Um, skilled practitioners. And I think what it taught us was that um, this is actually a, a very rich working method, that uh, if you work with people who are extremely good at what they do, you come together in a spirit of um, experimentation and curiosity, you set up a frame, and then you let it sort of, you let the program unfold the way it wants to unfold. And everyone is bringing their skill but they're not controlling, they're not working in terms of control and mastery or virtuosity. They're, they're contributing their skill towards the others and towards the unfolding uh, improvisation and reaction and counter-reaction and so on. So I think this is a good moment to, um, to dive a little bit formally into the divisions and the connections between disciplines. I mean, I know, Rolf, that you have been engaged in the intricacies of artistic research as has been um, establishing itself as a discipline and you just alluded to a research practice that cites itself within a contemporary art institution. Rachel, you are formerly an architect. So I, I think it would be good to look, as you do in the book, at some of the ways in which this exchange can be rendered productive. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a, such an interesting question. And I just want to say that actually I'm a, a, a medical doctor um, I actually trained and practiced as a medic, and um, I 
um, an architectural designer rather than an architect. I don't have a formal architectural qualification. I have an architectural PhD, but one that um, wouldn't uh, qualify me for making a building. Well, you've, you've built you've built home for cockroaches that, that I've built let a home them for survive the apocalypse. So I think <laughs> I think we're safe for now. Um, so so what was so for me there was already a journey which was um, the relationship between the body, technology, and space, um, and I was already looking for um, ways of expanding my knowledge and understanding. Um, and I needed to be receptive to other forms of influence if I was going to be able to address the questions I was asking. And so before I got to the protocells, I was actually um, a medical student um, in a sabbatical uh, in Pune in India, where I was um, on a leprosy colony. And I was assisting a hand surgeon doing surgery on... Um, people with leprosy. And what's interesting about the leprous body is that it cannot feel pain uh, because the bacillum, which is a bit like TB, but it eats into your nerves and, and kills them, um, uh, it, it means that um, you, you, you can't feel a surgical knife. Um, but if you have an anesthetic body for too long, it means that you don't protect it because you have no way of stopping um, uh, yourself from coming to harm. You've got no sense of your hand against uh, a hard surface, for example, or your feet against the ground. And so all these kind of um, secondary uh, problems happen from a primary source of infection, which is the bacillus. Um, and so with the hand surgeon, what we were doing was uh, restoring movement to broken parts of the body where um, the person was still maybe able to move their fingers but couldn't move their thumb and therefore couldn't work. And so what we could do was to take a finger tendon and transplant it into the thumb so that people had to learn how to use their thumb by formally moving their, what was previously their finger. So they had to re-adjust um, their own anatomy um, and their own relationship with their anatomy in order to maintain a certain quality of existence, which they wanted. So what was interesting about this was then that it wasn't just really a question of the body. It was a question of the body in the world as to how this body learns and is rehabilitated and then um, is restored as a, as a social agent, um, becomes a family member um, and becomes a productive uh, participant in the community. Um, I had lots of questions about that. So I needed a really expanded palette for that. So um, I needed to, first of all, be receptive to a need uh, and recognize that the discipline in which I uh, had been trained um, couldn't answer all those questions. And so the space that seemed to be able to take those next steps actually was the arts and architecture, the arts for you know, notions to do with the body in space and architecture for the uh, choreography of the materials and the affordances um, around a, a rehabilitated um, a bodily agent. I think what um, Rachel and I have in common is this uh, notion of being slightly nomadic within in a disciplinary sense. So um, it always amused me when I would try to present Rachel's work at the end of a lecture that you had to first of all try to, you know, 
categorize what her field was, and that was an impossible task. So in my own case, um, I studied literature in my, as my first degree and then went to UEA to do the master's in creative writing and stayed on to do the first, at that time, first PhD in creative and critical writing, as it was called, which meant I, I wrote a novel for my PhD and then an essay about, about the novel. So that in itself uh, led me into an interdisciplinary group looking at skill and knowledge transfer and skill, practical knowledge. Um, which uh, had its roots in Sweden, hence the invitation to Sweden. Uh, because in that group, I worked with two things, really, the, the, the play as a form and the philosophical dialogue. And we started exploring the philosophical dialogue as a way of bringing together uh, opposing or unresolvable positions and how, how that could be used pedagogically and also in interdisciplinary conferences to allow people a common reference um, uh, at the beginning of a meeting of, uh, of um, people interested in questions of skill and rule following. So the the point about the philosophical dialogue um, and the, the play form was, um, was really to look at different, at that time for me, literary forms that would be more appropriate for uh, holding different uh, perspectives within the same frame. So um, that then... In, in relation, in my relation to literature, led me to the prose poem, which I, I think of an increasing sort of density or or um, plurality of voices. The, the 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 philosophical dialogue or the dialogue allows two positions and a third space, the hermeneutic space of the reader. But the prose poem is more like a monster form because it it takes promiscuously from whichever uh, literary language game it would it would wish. So that for me was a very attractive form, and because of this skill and technology link, I landed in the architecture school in uh, at KTH, the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, and started talking to architects about their research and their transfer of spatial thinking into linear uh, textual forms, and started seeing um, with some confidence because I'd got away with my own PhD <laughs> uh, writing a novel for it. Um, how we could push the boundaries of the PhD for, to allow more flexible and um, expanded uh, performances in language within the PhD form. So that led me into not only, um, if you like, monstrous literary forms, but also the idea of monstering disciplinarity itself. I, I sometimes say that you know, I, I kept putting myself in situations where I didn't know what people were talking about in order to find out you know what, how they look, what tool, conceptual tools they they use, and to add them to my toolkit, and and that then also led me to uh, developing the field of artistic research in Scandinavia for twenty odd years. And what was interesting there, artistic research is the idea of, um, if you like, research through practice, and it's based on the assumption that there are forms of insight that are achievable only through the specifics of a, a given practice that would not be arrived at through any other means. So it's a recognition that you know the, the research field has been, if you like, engineered a certain way, but there's been an, an acknowledgement that those people who, are, who have been outside that conversation are also producing valuable methods and insights and concepts and um, contributions to research. What I realized when I, I started as part of that working for the Swedish Research Council is that many of the questions that supposedly were unique to artistic research were increasingly starting to affect 
other uh, research areas, including the sciences, such as the problem of classification, the problem of, of evaluation, uh, the problem of disciplinarity itself, you could say, as people start working in more hybrid or interdisciplinary forms. And um, and so the you know the exceptional started becoming um, an enabler of conversations in other sections of the research council elsewhere. And I think this is this is really interesting because where I connected with the whole artistic um, research trajectory that you've just described, Rolf, is um, in embodiment. So I so having been a medical doctor standing outside a body. You know, scalpel in hand, um, you know, doing things to bodies. Um, the uh, ability to stand inside and be a body in a world was a language that artistic research actually offered. Uh, it didn't exist in the sciences because you have to detract your, uh, you know, detach yourself as an external observer in order to be a body. And so the language and the insights and the tools and the you know kind of whole portfolio of approaches that you brought um, enabled certainly from you know kind of my science technology approach uh, to suddenly stand inside the world um, that it had made for itself um, and start to inhabit it in a different way and for me that was I think you know looking back on it that is what the protocell was for me it was a body you know, looking out at the world and I was looking back in and the, you know, the bodying uh, between these two very different agents um, yet still had this conversation that I had absolutely no ability to describe other than through the narrow lens of science. That's not to say that, you know, that the protocell wasn't born through scientific knowledge, um, but it was, it was a perspective uh, to knowledge making that was absent from the tool set that I was used to using. And that's where the dialogue uh, continues to be a very useful tool here because it's not only, now it's not only in a, in our work, the way I think of it, it's not only a, a, an exchange of views between embodied human or philosophical positions, but it's now can be uh, a dialogue or rather perhaps the impossibility of dialogue between uh, something outside language or a non-human element and an observer. So that gaze you just described of the protocells, I think, is also affecting uh, the the way that we approach things like um, microbes um, and through and bricks. You know, creating setting up our next segment perfectly because you you very kindly sent me a recording of um, living brick, a dialogue between well, a dialogue by caustic Ophelia. So it would be fantastic if you could introduce this before we listen to a bit of the work. Uh, caustic Ophelia is a material experiment that, again, builds on this idea of um, agentized matter um, and the complexity of the materials that we take for granted, specifically those that form our soils. Um, they have this um, rather Cinderella status, and yet they are so essential for life. Um, and when I was working with protocells, I could see how material layers um, appeared to be in conversation with each other. And so the idea was to uh, create a complex experiment that created different chemical layers, layers between organic matter, um, to have a range of different programs that may have to do with colour, um, to do with um, chemical reactivity, um, and the ability to change with time. And so we created this 
beautiful body that was a combination of living things that we uh, that were petals actually um, that we went uh, around uh, Newcastle's courtyard collecting them on the ground um, and then took precious uh, um, materials so gold leaf and copper um, and um, really created a, a body of layers of gel and chemicals like uh, we were building a creature. Um, and it was in a, almost a, a, a container that was um, uh, see-through, like a glass coffin. But the interesting thing about this coffin or this box was that you could see um, the, the section of the body as it was being formed. So in some ways, there was a kind of Frankensteinian purpose if you were uh, going to use um, a protocol of care and um, insights from chemistry and biology to create tensions between materials in a way that um, uh, the structure could be alive, this soft structure in a hard, clear shell, um, so that voyeuristically we can actually see what happens to that process. And at the same time, we understand that this isn't this isn't a you know a, a, a Frankensteinian um, success. Uh, this is actually quite the opposite. Uh, it is made so that it can transform again to become soil. Um, and one has to ask whether this is something that is dying or whether this is something that can actually be reactivated by the re. Um, uh, by the rehydration process and the adding of water again. Um, so, so the idea was to make this ambiguous body, a body with the intention of something that possessed some of the qualities of life. It wasn't trying to be an organism or a person, um, but it certainly had qualities about it that were incredibly appealing. Um, and um, so uh, we placed the body in this, in this box uh, for the whole world to see. Well, we should also say that it was um, exhibited at the Adaptive Architecture Exhibition at Nottingham Trent University in 2018. It came out of a, a brick dialogue series. We were really interrogating the brick for reasons which we will explain later. Um, but the brick as the fundamental unit of design and saying, what might a brick be? How might we recon reconceive the brick? Because if you could have a living brick, you can have a living home. If you have a living home, you can have a living neighbourhood. And what does that do to our concepts of inhabitation, um, uh, uh, neighbourliness, kinship, and so on? Um, and so this was part of a, that series of experiments to rethink the brick. I would say on the, um, on the literary side, I was sort of interested in this idea of uh, constant slippage you know that you're you're constantly slipping in your frames of the reference it's no longer a stable uh narrator or voice coming from one single position but rather the perspective is shifting all the time between slipping through chemicals slipping from human to non-human um and yet at the same time retaining some uh narrative tension and uh, and some logic of uh, exchange so there is um, a voice that is uh, <clears throat> moving continually in the piece, I think, um, but it's also uh, being affected by this process of decay and deterioration and then regeneration as well. It's at stake in the process that Rachel just itemized, chemical um, dehydration and rehydration. 
we we started working through Shakespeare's heroines for these series. <laughs> the next one, in fact, was called Cracked Hermione, picking up on Hermione in The Winter's Tale, who, as a result of her husband's jealousy, uh, died of a broken heart and was, by some magic of stagecraft, turned into a statue until many years later when Leontes had repented of his foolish uh, jealousy that um, her maid was able to touch her and, again, by the miracle of stagecraft, the statue steps down and is a living, breathing actress again on stage. Well, so, no, no such luck for Ophelia, unfortunately. No. So let's <laughs> listen to, a, to an extract from this work now. Let us let acknowledge us it. Acknowledge it. A spore of pollen inside a balloon. Inside a balloon. Glass of Glass fashion. Of fashion. Mold of mold of form. A drum, a drum inside, inside a bloody room. A bloody room. The whole world. The whole world stone. becoming stone. Did you think it might? Did you rise? think it might rise? I wanted to sink. I wanted to sink. Here's rue for you. Here's There's rue none for me. For you. There's none the for me. Of poor Ophelia. The eyes of poor Blasted. Ophelia. Ecstatic. Blasted. Ecstatic. Whatever worm eats or impregnates. Whatever worm eats or impregnates. Under that I sucked bed. that honey. His breezy under vows. That bed. Sweet bells. His jangling, breezy vows. Sweet bells jangling. Caressing my river's silvery skin. Disordering the petals you plucked. I plucked from the wind. These petals I plucked from the wind. Mulching. Mulching. Always something turning Always to something rot. turning or to rot. Or the blue bacteria. Let us acknowledge the blue blasted bacteria. Mulch. A spore of pollen. She's drying out. Inside the balloon. Dying to dry out. She's drying out. A Caustic mold. Dying of to dry out. Eat I suck. Caustic heat a drum, an open coffin. It's heat and bloody room. An open heartbreak. The whole world with incoming many rivers, mulching. Ophelia, heartbreak hotel. What? Caustic soda. She's drying out. Nothing will come of nothing. She's drying out. Ophelia. Good night, ladies. What? Good night, sweet ladies. Nothing. Good night. This artificial heart. What nothing will come of nothing. It's not nothing. Good night, ladies. Good night. Good night, sweet Good night. ladies. Good night. This artificial heart. What of it? It's not nothing. Good night. Good night. Well, fantastic. This was Caustic Ophelia, which um, I believe I can just about see in the background of Rachel's um, Zoom window.
Um, but before we got into the usefulness of dialogue, which I think was amply illustrated with this extract, um, Rachel, you mentioned Frankenstein, Rolf, you've referred to monsters a, a fair few times. And this is, this is an apparatus that you do also develop in the book, which I think is part of this toolkit for experimentation. So I think it would be great to, to round up our conversation to understand how you see these kind of bodies as being productive and how people can join in in this experimentation. I think for me, the Organa Paradoxa is there to um, uh, re-enliven, re-enchant, re-empower um, those agents, those bodies, those presences that have been factored out of the, the value landscape of modernity and the Enlightenment. Um, and you know, ontologically, uh, you know, we were looking for those um, kinds of agents that didn't already fit, and um, but also we were looking at um, you know processes within life itself um, that are inherently creative that seek to defy these neat categories um, that you know. Carl Linnaeus set, you know, that, that there are specific species with binomial nomenclature um, and that the Organa Paradoxa um, gives the world permission in a sense. It's already got this permission, but it recognises its vibrancy and effusiveness in these almost profane forms of mixing and relating. It's as if matter wants to be with other matter and it doesn't have the kind of discriminatory apparatus that let's say um you know biblical stories about Noah and the ark might have or you know Carl Linnaeus's notions of binomial uh, nomenclature or uh, eugenics you know with its you know, notions of uh, perfection and um hierarchy of species so it kind of moves away from a hierarchy of order of being and starts to look um, horizontally towards expanding itself through not just kin, so making kin, as it were, um, forming um, family, not, not just forming family through other kinds of, of, of body, um, but also through kith, a re-relating of the fundamental nature of environment, you know, being at home in a place. And so the Organa Paradoxa, in some ways, um, takes the constraints of life um, to allow it to overflow these categories. And in that very overflowing of category, that sense of monstering um, starts to declare itself. And we uh, took that imperative and started to work that um, into some of our prototypes and experiments. It's um, a response to a world in a state of constant flux and has been underlined by the fact that the uh, COVID-19 pandemic struck us during the final stage of the book. Um, but in other words, a response to the need for radical change at a time of ecocide and an attempt to really think about uh, what forms of cooperation and acts of generosity that underpin healthy ecological systems might be might be coordinated or uh, choreographed as Rachel said um, 
it's um, bringing together different voices and materials and media and practices um, to try to synthesize the potentiality of monstering. And uh, I think our sort of aim is to, through this term monstering, is to generate qualitatively new encounters in the choreography of space and its inhabitation, to challenge normative protocols and existing practices by embodying the unknown and the uncontrollable aspects of the world. So um, we see it as a way of embracing our innate zoophilia, which is from Rosie Bradotti, um, and to increase our ability to respond to ever-changing uh, realities, finding new forms of diplomacy. Uh, and, and I would say also it is a fundamentally ethical practice, not in the sense that it is always good, but because it is problematic um, to, uh, let's say, take the gloves off life and you know, allow its promiscuity um, is a very dangerous thing to do. Um, and um, so this idea of the precarity of this kind of radical creativity, you know, in the production of prototypes, these provisional bodies, um, is a way of celebrating diversity, difference and paradox um, and enabling uh, previously subdued agencies to become increasingly lively and present, but not to run away from the difficulty of that, but to actively engage in uh, the, as, as Rolf has just said, the diplomacy of negotiating our relationship um, with an enlivened realm. Well, this is a beautifully challenging and hopeful place to end our conversation. Um, I'll include links for our listeners to some of the projects and some of the videos we mentioned, which I thoroughly recommend. I mean, cockroaches and space bouquets are definitely an experience. We're going to play out the episode with an extract from a research, recent improvised work by Rolf that was made with colonies of instruments and audio effect and explored interactions between microbial cultures. So do please stick around for that. And for now, Rachel, Rolf, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, yeah. The Art of Experiment, Post-Pandemic Knowledge Practices for 21st Century Architecture and Design is published by Routledge. I'm Pierre Delancet and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening and join us next time.